I will get them. Sergeant Earl Gregory, Headquarters Company, 116th Infantry Regiment, 29th Division, Bois de Consenvois, October 8th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 80, The Mers Heights. Shout out to Rockport High student and machinist David, who listens to the show while he works nights at a machine shop, goes to school during the day. Sounds to me like a hard worker, folks, and misses BFWWP says he is, and that he has a bright future ahead of him. Keep it up, man. Outstanding. Patreon peoples, thank you so much for your continued patience. I am working on the second barn, and we'll have something out soon. We are otherwise light on admin notes for this episode, folks, so I'll spare you all the pitches and talks, and let's just do it. Let's get back to the front. A week into October 1918, the American command in the Meuse sector finally had to do something about the German artillery on the right bank of the River Meuse. Ever since the beginning of the Meuse-Argonne offensive on September 26th, the enemy's guns had pounded hell out of the 3rd and 5th Corps sectors from the relative safety of the other side of the river. American attacks had been continuously harassed and even destroyed by the relentless rain of shells that came from the German gun emplacements on the Hauts de Meuse, in English, the Meuse Heights. AEF and AEF First Army Commander-in-Chief General John J. Pershing had already agreed in principle with Allied Supreme Commander Marshal Ferdinand Foch that the American offensive needed to be expanded onto the right bank of the Meuse. At that time, when the Americans were refitting from the first four days of combat between the Argonne and the Meuse, Pershing hadn't been ready to commit just yet. But now he was. This is another sign of what Martin Ott calls in his latest book, The Meuse-Argonne 1918, The Right Bank to the Armistice, quote, the inevitable consequence of a young army, end quote. For anyone who had observed the events of the Battle of Verdun on this very battlefield just two years prior would have been aware of how the Germans had themselves only attacked on the right bank of the Meuse in February 1916. Within days, 
The French artillery on the left bank had unleashed a punishing firestorm of shells upon the Frontschwein scrambling over the shell holes. The Germans had had to expand their own offensive to attack and seize Les Mortons and Kut 304 on the left bank, widening the frontage of the Battle of Verdun. What had faced Pershing and his doughboys since the 26th of September was a reverse of the Verdun problem. The enemy's guns were on the Meuse Heights on the right bank, a north-south ridge that provided excellent observation and artillery emplacement areas. Hindsight is always 20-20, of course, but it was a known problem at the time as well. And had the guns been vigorously attacked from the beginning, it is doubtless that many hundreds and even thousands of Doughboy's lives and limbs could have been spared. Another consequence of a young army is that even now, 12 days into some of the most brutal combat on the western front of the Great War, General Pershing and his staff still thought they could accomplish the seizure of the Meuse Heights on the cheap. The French 17th Corps, stationed on the right bank and already fighting in that area, would have its two French infantry divisions augmented by two of the mammoth AEF divisions. That should provide the necessary force density to clear the Germans out of their well-sighted and thoroughly dug-in positions, it was thought. Major General Henri-Edouard Claudel the commander of the French 17th Corps was ordered to put his poilus on alert. If you've ever seen a photograph of Major General Claudel, it's likely the one where he's standing next to American 79th Division Commander Major General Joseph Kuhn. Claudel has a casque Adrien on his head, a lit cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and a rather ridiculous, but also probably ridiculously warm fur coat. This photo will be posted on social media so you folks can check it out. A career soldier with military service before, during, and after the Great War, Claudel strikes me as the type of officer who, maybe, whose fields of Fs was barren, if you know what I mean. Claudel put his French 18e and 26e Division d'Infanterie the 18th and 26th Infantry Divisions, in an offensive posture. There would be a frontal assault on the Meuse Heights, focusing on taking the high ground northwest of the destroyed village of beaumont en verdenois The ridge ran between the Meuse to the west and a glorified stream titled the River Tante to the east. Due to the lack of success of the October 4th and subsequent attacks led by the AEF west of the Meuse, the American 33rd Division was assigned to the French. The 33rd Division was stationed at the far right front of the AEF's 3rd Corps, holding a line along the Meuse and north of Denevo Village along the left bank. A new American Division, the 29th, was also assigned to Claudel's French 17th Corps as well. From left to right, Claudel had his men arrayed as follows. The 33rd on the left bank of the Meuse, the 58th Brigade of the 29th Division inserted into the front line on the right bank, and the French 18th and 26th Divisions to its right. The French were to be reinforced by six battalions of Senegalese tirailleurs, tough soldiers feared 
by the Germans. The attack's objectives were for three German defensive lines, the Brabant, the Hagen, and the Volker lines, to be pierced and pushed through. The Doughboys of the 33rd Golden Cross Division were to cross the Meuse and then seize the ruined villages of Brabant-sur-Meuse and Consenvois. There, the men of the 33rd would then link up with the Doughboys of the 29th on their right. Quick side note, if Consenvois sounds familiar to you, it is likely because there is a sizable German cemetery just south of the village. Over 11,000 souls are buried there. It is at Consenvois where German Chancellor Helmut Kohl and French President François Mitterrand laid wreaths in a powerful and symbolic gesture of friendship in 1984. It is also here where in May 2016, French President François Hollande and German Chancellor Angela Merkel commemorated the centenary of the Battle of Verdun. The men of the 29th would be pushing north from the shattered village of Saint-Magneau to assist in the attack on Brabant before pushing on to capture Côte de Malbrouc and the Bois de Concevoix to the northeast. The French 18th Division, on the right of the 29th, would attack up the hills to clear the ruins of aumont pré saint and then the Ferme d'Aumont, an English Ormont farm. On the far right, the French 26th Division would clear the murdered wood of the Bois de Car and then keep attacking northeast to clear the village of Flabat. The American 33rd Division was assigned to Claudel's Corps on the 7th, and that night, combat engineers built two footbridges across the Meuse between Brabant and Consenvois. Before 0500 that morning, French and American guns launched a rolling barrage. There was no earlier artillery prep, so the Germans wouldn't be tipped off as to what was about to happen. But the enemy facing the 33rd Division Doughboys weren't Germans, however. They were actually soldiers of the K und K. Armee, Kaiserlich und Königlich Armee, the Imperial Austrian and Royal Hungarian Army. More specifically, the formation in the field was the 1st Austro-Hungarian Division, with the German 7th Reserve Division nearby as backup. You might be asking yourself, what were the Austro-Hungarians doing on the Western Front in October 1918? Well, there were a few reasons that will be oversimplified and given here. The war years had seen the relationship between the ancient Habsburgs and the young upstart Germans reverse rather dramatically. Time and again, the German army had proven to be the more professional military force, as it inevitably had to come in on the Eastern Front to stabilize shattered Austro-Hungarian lines. German troops had led the assault on Italian lines in the Battle of Caporetto. This had led the Germans to assert their dominance and to begin to request transfers of K K troops to the fighting in France. In spring and summer 1918, this led the crumbling Habsburg Empire to send four infantry divisions to the Western Front. One division was mauled by the Americans at Saint-Miel, and the first division now faced the Doughboys. Behind the German lines on the right bank, there were two other divisions, 
These were mainly used for labor and rear area duties. At 0500, the French and American attack began behind the rolling barrage mentioned earlier. The Doughboys of the 132nd Infantry left their positions shortly before 0600, their hobnailed and worn boots pounding the planks of the rough footbridges they were soon across the river. With the support of machine gun companies, the men of the 132nd Infantry pushed north of Brabant-sur-Meuse. They headed in a northeast direction. High explosive and gas shells landed amongst the advancing troops, forcing them to wear their protective masks for much of the time. Around noon, Doughboys entered the ruins of Consenvois. 2nd Battalion, 131st Infantry, was ordered across the river to support the others. Hearing the 29th Division Doughboys were on the Côte de Malbrook and in Bois de Brabant to their right, the 132nd Infantry troops pushed up towards the road running northeast out of Consenvois towards Etreille on the other side of the Meuse Heights. That road today is known as the D-19. Here, the Austrians unleashed a storm of machine gun fire on the Americans. Doughboys dropped to the ground, either hit and screaming out, or scrambling for the nearest cover. It was soon impossible to move. First Sergeant Johannes Anderson of B Company, 1st Battalion, 132nd Infantry, saw one source of fire up ahead of his company's line, one machine gun nest with crew. Top Anderson, top being the nickname for Company 1st Sergeants in the U.S. Army, Top Anderson took it upon himself to clear the nest. Crawling from shell hole to shell hole while under fire, Anderson worked his way around and behind the 25-man nest without being hit or detected. He waited until the gun crew had to reload and then charged them. Armed with a shotgun and a 45 caliber Colt pistol, Anderson blasted two soldiers with a shotgun. The ferocity and suddenness of the assault stunned the other Austrian troops. They immediately threw their hands up to the American NCO. The gun nest was cleared, and Anderson marched his prisoners out. His actions would earn him the Medal of Honor. Nearby, Private Clayton Slack of D Company, 124th Machine Gun Battalion, saw another Austrian position ahead of him. The enemy soldiers here were pouring rifle and machine gun fire into the ragged American line. The tall and lanky Private Slack up and charged the distance to the enemy position. Again, the shock of his action caused ten Austrian men to throw their rifles down and give up the fight. Two heavy machine guns were also put out of the fight, and Slack's actions inspired others to get up and rush the enemy. The Americans began to make their way to the D-19 road, reaching it around noon. Private Clayton Slack would be awarded the Medal of Honor in February 1919 in the same ceremony that would see First Sergeant Anderson and a host of other recipients receive the award. But a quick side note here and an excerpt from Martin Ott's latest battlefield guidebook, The Meurs Argonne, 1918, The Right Bank to the Armistice. Clayton Slack made his money after the war by going around the U.S. on tours talking about his war experiences. He would show war films, 
and then show off those two Maxim machine guns he had captured that October day in 1918. How he got them home, I have no idea. But now Mr. Slack told a most interesting story a few years before he passed on in 1976. Quote, While playing the Schubert Theater in New York City, a man approached my dressing room after the film showing and introduced himself as Heinrich Kuhler. I was flabbergasted. Kuhler was a German. Original source and podcaster note, Austrian actually, Kuhler was a German sergeant I had captured when I got the machine gun nest. He was playing the snare drum in a German beer garden in Jersey City and saw the ad in the paper and came to see my show in the theater. He came to America after the war, married an American girl, and became a citizen. I hired him for a while. End quote. Small, <laughs> small world, huh? The 132nd Infantry supported by the 124th Machine Gun Battalion and two battalions of the 131st Infantry Regiment, pushed in towards the Meuse Heights some two and a half miles. At the end of October 8th, they established the line just 200 meters north of Consenvoie and 100 meters south of the Bois de Chaume, which is north of Consenvoie village. The Austrians and Germans under the army group Mass Ost made, quote, the widest possible use of gas ammunition, with slight use of HE, high explosive, end quote. All night, the Americans out on the front line later reported they were, quote, flooded with gas, end quote. To their right, of course, was the 29th Division. Post-war, the 29th would be authorized a circular yin-yang patch of blue and gray, and it is still known today as the Blue and Gray Division. These colors are a reference to the fact that the division, organized from Delaware, Maryland, New Jersey, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. area National Guard units, was composed of northern and southern men. The American Civil War was just 53 years in the past in 1918, and no doubt there was lingering bitterness that needed to be healed in some way. The 29th Division's 58th Brigade was in the front line on a two-kilometer wide front with plans to make a seven-kilometer advance that day. On the left front, shouldering against the 33rd Division was the 115th Infantry Regiment, made up of men from Delaware and Maryland, and now positioned south of Brabant. To their right was the 116th Infantry, made up of Virginians just north of Semenyeux. The blue and gray doughboys jumped off at 0500 on the 8th behind the rolling barrage that was 300 meters ahead of them. The ground they rushed over had been pummeled into a lunar landscape two years before during the Battle of Verdun. It was hard to dodge belts of old wire, shell holes, shattered dugouts, and old and disused trenches. The Austrians were caught by surprise by the 29th's attack. They didn't launch their counter-barrage until around 0530, and when they did, they unleashed a rain of high explosive and gas. Masks had to be quickly donned before the advance could continue. The Americans reached the Austro-Hungarian line around 620, though, and the Austrians slyly let them run over the trench lines. When the Americans were passed, they came out of their dugouts 
with captured British-made Lewis guns and cut them down in droves. The Austrians were quickly counterattacked and eliminated, either killed or captured. The remaining doughboys grabbed the Lewis guns and put them right back to work. The men of the 115th Infantry escaped a good portion of the shelling that the 33rd Division was taking because they were out of the direct line of sight of the Austrians. Because of this, they crashed into the southwest edge of the Bois de Consenvois in an area called Fond de Gimvaux on Google Maps. The Doughboys steadily pushed the Austrians back here. On the battalion's left flank, H Company was held up by heavy machine gun fire. As these units were equipped with the new BAR, Browning Automatic Rifle, a BAR team was called up to charge an enemy machine gun nest. 20-year-old Private Henry Coston volunteered. From his Medal of Honor citation, quote, When the advance of his platoon had been held up by machine gun fire and a request was made for an automatic rifle team to charge the nest, Private Coston was the first to volunteer, advancing with his team under terrific fire of enemy artillery machine guns and trench mortars, he continued after all his comrades had become casualties and he himself had been seriously wounded. He operated his rifle until he collapsed. His act resulted in the capture of about a hundred prisoners and several machine guns. He succumbed from the effects of his wounds shortly after the accomplishment of his heroic deed. End quote. The award, of course, would be a posthumous one. The 115th Infantry fought through the corner of the woods throughout the afternoon and by evening established the line along the Concevoix-Etreille Road. 3rd Battalion, following as a reserve, made contact with the 33rd Division on its left. The Virginia Doughboys of the 116th Infantry fought their way uphill towards positions of the German Folker Line. To their right, the French were in a heavy battle for the Bois d'Aumont behind them, leaving the 116th flank exposed. Their left flank was exposed as well. The front elements of the 116th assaulted the enemy trench line before Melbrook Hill. The trenches were cleared, with many Austrians putting their hands up and yelling out, Kamahad, when they saw the fight was over. Behind the lines, the Austrian artillery wasn't giving up at all. Artillery shells crashed down on the just-taken position, proving, once again, that the Germans had had four years to prepare for this very fight by sighting every trench and machine gun nest. Doughboys, still trying to catch their breath from the attack, dove for cover. Things got worse when German planes swooped down and strafed the Americans with their machine guns. The Côte de Malbrook now had to be attacked and seized. L Company, 3rd Battalion, with its sister K Company in support, made their way up the hill quickly. Their quick-moving attack surprised the defenders, who were either killed or taken prisoner. The Doughboys then kept pushing northeast to the Bois de Bourbon, which was cleared, and then they shifted north to the Bois de Consenvois. Here, they hit a wall of enemy fire, as others elsewhere along the line had encountered that day. American Sergeant Earl Gregory was aggravated by having to hunker down and stay low due to the bullets snapping everywhere. With his rifle, 
and a trench mortar shell he intended to use as a grenade, he told his platoon mates, I will get them, and took off towards the enemy, which is a totally NCO type of thing to do. Sergeant Gregory attacked a machine gun nest and cleared it, taking the gun and the three-man crew prisoner. He kept going. He attacked a 75-millimeter gun position and cleared that, and then ran into a dugout. He came out with 19 Austrian prisoners. In April of 1919, Sergeant Gregory would be awarded the Medal of Honor. To stay in line with the French 18th Division, the 116th Infantry Troops later pulled back to a line running through the Bois de Consenvoie and Bois de Brabant. They had no contact with the men of the 115th to their left. So, as we mentioned before, the AEF 33rd and 29th Divisions had been assigned to the French 17th Corps, which itself was under command of the AEF 1st Army. We also mentioned that Claudel's corps also had the French 18th and 26th divisions, and it's time to talk about them just a little bit. To the right of the American 29th division, the poilus of the French 77e Regiment d'Infanterie, 77th Infantry Regiment, were to attack northeast towards the Bois d'Aumont and reach its northern edge. From there, the 67th Senegalese Battalion was to conduct a passage of lines and take over the line. The 3rd Battalion of the 77th would then also do a passage of lines and strike for the crest inside the Bois de Crapillon, up northeast past the Bois d'Aumont and Ferme d'Aumont. H-Hour, as the French called it, came at 0500, like everywhere else, that morning of October 8, 1918. The first German line was reached and cleared quickly. The brick piles that used to be the village of aumont pré saint a village with origins of sun god worshippers and which had existed for at least 1,700 years until February 1916, was overrun. I'll repost my photos from Ormont from 2016 on social media. The Poilu first wave kept on going, using the terrain to avoid the worst of the incoming machine gun fire from the Bois d'Aumont ahead and the Bois de Car to the southeast. Reaching the edge of Bois d'Aumont, the Germans unleashed a heavy fire that halted the advance. This is when the Poilus fell behind and left the American 116th Regiment's flank open. Fighting raged in the shattered wood until 7th Company Commander Sous-Lieutenant Murgatois led a flanking maneuver that flushed the enemy out. Even with that, the advance only reached the edge of the wood by evening. On the far right of the attack, the 42e Regiment d'Infanterie, 92nd Infantry Regiment, attacked to the right of the French 77th Infantry, also attacking north-northeast towards the Bois de Car, the 92nd belonging to the French 26th Division. So, if your memory is good, you'll remember that the last time we saw the 92nd Infantry Regiment, it was led by Lieutenant Colonel Marquer in March of 1916. 
at the Bois de Corbeau to the north of cumier le mortom on the Verdun battlefield, Lieutenant Colonel Macaire had on the morning of 10th March washed his mustache with Pinard, French Army issue wine, donned a spotless uniform with white gloves, and led his men from the front in a counterattack to retake the wood. Macaire had led his battalion to a brief victory when his poilus wrenched the Bois de Corbeau away from the Germans, but he himself was killed shortly thereafter. Now the 92nd Infantry, led by a Lieutenant Colonel Doulambourg, was ordered to retake the Bois de Car, where another badass Lieutenant Colonel had held the Germans back at the beginning of the Battle of Verdun. We speak, of course, of Émile Durian. 2nd Battalion was on the left, 1st Battalion on the right. The 1st Battalion reached its objective line quickly. The men of 2nd Battalion had more trouble advancing as some 22 machine guns from bois Mont to their left lashed the attacking French with enfilading fire. The Germans then counterattacked, taking back a third of the artillery-blasted wood. Lieutenant Colonel Doulambourg called in the 3rd Battalion and inserted it in between the two front-line battalions. Advancing behind a rolling barrage of pounding shells, the French retook the wood again. On the left, the French used Stokes mortars to blast the enemy machine gun nests in the Bois d'Aumont. The French 6th Company, led by a Lieutenant Corte, then assaulted two machine gun nests and cleared them out. Sixty Germans were captured as a result. Lieutenant Corter was later made a Chevalier of the Legion d'Honneur. The French 26th Division dug in slightly behind the French 18th to their left. October 8, 1918 ended as a success for the Americans and French, but not an outstanding one. The Americans had crossed the river and pushed the enemy back several kilometers, and the French were advancing as well. But the Germans and Austrians had not been swept off the Meuse Heights as had been planned. German General von der Marwitz ordered that the French and Americans had to be pushed back immediately. Reserve infantry divisions, such as they were, were rushed during the night to the new battle area on the right bank of the Meuse. Some 10,000 men were scraped together from five understrength divisions. Maasgruppe Ost was ordered to, quote, retake the main line of resistance, and at the very least, the Volkerstellung, end quote. These lines were exactly where the Doughboys and Poilus were dug in. A German and Austrian response was coming. The grind of the Meuse had spread east. Next time, we will continue the fight on the right bank. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at, at @ww1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.